Good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. As Pastor Wayne mentioned, I am the new kid in town. I'm the newest member of our presbytery. And as Wayne and I did some fact-checking yesterday at Presbytery, I'm also the youngest member of Presbytery. So Wayne had a plaque in his office, now he has to give to me. He held for just a few months, and now we'll see how long I can hold on to that. Um, so I, I don't know many of you, I, I know a handful of you, but I'd love to get to know you better. Please come and, and say hi to me and my wife afterwards, we'd love to get to know you. And, um, but we're not entirely unfamiliar with uh, this congregation, being a student at Westminster Seminary, my wife works at the seminary, we've got to know Pastor Dale, and um, uh, through that we've formed a, a nice friendship and uh, we're looking forward to getting to working with him more in the future. Uh, also, though, we have uh, a good friends, uh, Andrew and Anessa Beckering, who've moved from California to Michigan. We got to see Andrew and another one of your young men come under care yesterday at Presbytery, which was encouraging. Um, but I do remember uh, back in our days in California, maybe, oh, I don't know, a year and a half ago, at uh, Anessa's mother's house, we were having lunch, and uh, they were thinking about moving, or they getting ready to move back to Grand Rapids and I remember looking Andrew straight in the face and saying, who in the world would move to Michigan? What are you thinking? Stay in California. Do your seminary here in California. Everything's better in California. And a year and a half later, here I am, pastor in Michigan. So God moves in mysterious and, and funny ways, but we are so glad to be here uh, in Michigan. And especially, I'm, I'm glad I can be with you today and bring God's word to you. God's word comes from Second Chronicles 20. I'll ask you to turn there, please. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 30, so the majority of the chapter, I, I don't know how things work, if it's going to pop up behind me or not, but I would encourage you to take your Bibles, if you have them, to read along, because we'll be uh, flipping to a few other passages, so I'd like you to keep your, your Bibles open in front of you, if you can. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. beginning in verse 1 through verse 30. This is God's Word. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, and with them some of the Maunites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is, En Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord. And he proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah, and Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, 
judgment or pestilence or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house. We will cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. Now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, their children, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaniah, son of Jael, son of Mattaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but is God's. Tomorrow go down against them, and behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the, valley, at the end of the valley east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army, saying, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir who had come against Judah so that they were routed For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. When Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the horde, and behold, there were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped. And when Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found among them in great numbers goods clothing, and precious things, which they took for themselves until they could carry no more. They were three days in taking the spoil. It was so much. On the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Barakah, for, they, for there they blessed the Lord, and therefore they named, or therefore the name of that place has been called the valley of Barakah to this day. And then they returned, every man of Judah and Jerusalem and Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy 
for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. And they came to Jerusalem with harps and lyres and trumpets to the house of the Lord, and the fear of God came on all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. And so the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest all around. Thus far the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. Let us pray. Our Father, we ask as we come now to this time where we open up your word, we have, we have heard it read, Lord, and we ask now that you would bless the preaching of your word, Lord. Would you, by your spirit, come among us and illumine our hearts and our minds, Lord. Might we have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge that we might be filled With the fullness of God, we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Gripping fear. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it, if you think about it? Gripping fear. Uh, We personify fear by saying it's like a hand that's got a hold of us and it won't let go. It's got us stuck. It's got us trapped. God is paralyzed. It's an interesting phrase, but it's it's a fitting phrase, isn't it? We all know that feeling, that kind of immobilizing fear. We've all experienced, I think we've all experienced, if you haven't, count yourself among the blessed, uh, those nightmares where you're running from some unknown terror and you trip and you fall and you can't get back up because you're so terrified. Right? It gives me chills just thinking about it. We know that kind of paralyzing fear. It's though a reality. It doesn't just happen in our dreams. We know about it in real life. We've, we've seen the stage performer freeze under the gleam of the threatening spotlight, forgetting their lines during opening night. We've seen the toddler with knees locked at the side of the pool refusing to jump into daddy's arms because they're so afraid. We know this kind of paralyzing fear. We've experienced it in our own lives, the paralysis that accompanies shocking news, shocking news that perhaps we receive at the workplace. I'm sorry, you're let go. Shocking news that we receive at home. I'm leaving you. And shocking news Perhaps that we receive at the hospital. I'm sorry we've done everything that we could. This kind of news drains us. The breath leaves us. And we find ourselves paralyzed. We find ourselves gripped by fear. Fear is real. It's a reality. Being afraid is part of being human. But here's what we need to recognize Fear belongs to that, that sphere of fallen humanity. Fear was never part of God's good plan for his good creation. And thus we are commanded in Scripture 101 times, either do not fear, fear not, or do not be afraid. Those three phrases in total appear in Scripture over 100 times. Uh, quite simply, brothers and, and sisters, To live a life of fear, 
a life that is defined by fear is to live a life of sin. What do I mean by that? Well, you see, to be afraid, fear, at its core, is the manifestation of a deep-seated disposition of the heart that says, God doesn't know what's best for me. God doesn't know what's best for me. Now, whether it's fear of spiders or fear of public speaking, whether it's uh, fear of um, death or fear of the unknown, it all reveals that in our heart of hearts, we don't trust God's plan for our lives. To live as one who is constantly afraid, to succumb to our phobias, to be gripped by panic is ultimately to take a stab, to take a stab at God's character. What we're saying when we're afraid is basically this, uh, this thing I'm facing or this thing that I'm dreading having to face, I, I do everything I can to avoid it because I know if I do encounter it, God, things won't go well for me. Things won't go well. So we orchestrate our entire lives around our fears. You know, we don't travel because we're afraid of flying. Uh, we don't have fun because we're afraid of social interactions and social awkwardness. We, we miss out on so much on account of our fears. And yet the thing we miss out on the most is this, and I want you to hear me on this point because it's really going to structure our discussion this morning this is what we miss out on most when we are afraid. We miss out on knowing our good God and knowing how good He really is. That's what we're missing the most when we're afraid. Knowing our good God and knowing how good He really is. Now, perhaps we don't think about it when we're afraid. When we're afraid, we don't consciously think that we are dishonoring God, that we're turning our backs on God, that we're taking a stab at God's character that we're trying to control our own little worlds. We don't think about it like that, but that's because it's so ingrained into who we are, and that's why God has to plead with us 101 times, stop being afraid. Don't be afraid. Fear not. He pleads with us to trust in Him, trust and believe in His care for us, His compassion for us, His plan of peace and safety for us. And so He tells us over and over and over again, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And he tells us again in this passage here in Second Chronicles 20, what is there to be afraid of in this story that we've just read? Quite simply, it's the threat of war. That's the first thing I want to consider with you this morning is that this story opens with war. War. The setting, just to give you a little bit of uh, background, is in the southern kingdom, Judah. So Israel split into two halves at this point, or, or two nations, the northern uh, sect and the southern sect. This is in the southern kingdom. Uh, this is about uh, a little more than 100 years after the reign of David, and Jehoshaphat is now king. And he's one of the few men that ruled God's people uprightly after the division of the kingdom into its southern and northern portions. In fact, there's quite a lot of good things that can be said about Jehoshaphat's reign. Obviously, the most important thing about a king, the most important evaluation of the king was his fidelity to Yahweh. That's what would make or break their legacy. And this is what we find in chapter 17. Just flip back in your Bibles a couple pages 
to chapter 17 of 2 Chronicles and, and look at all the good things we read about King Jehoshaphat. Beginning there in verse 3 of, of chapter 17, the Lord was with Jehoshaphat. Why? Because he walked in the earlier ways of his father David. He did not seek after the Baals, but he sought the God of his father, and he walked in his commandments, not according to the practices of Israel, that is, the northern idolatrous rebellious nation. And so it says in verse 5, therefore the Lord established the kingdom in his hand, and all Judah brought tribute to Jehoshaphat. He had great riches and honor. Look at the beginning there, verse 6. It says, his heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord. He had a zeal to serve the Lord. And furthermore, he took down the high places of the ashram out of Judah. He took down the idolatrous temples, uh, 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 worship temples. So we see in chapter 17 that, that because he is faithful to Yahweh, the Lord has established the kingdom in his hand. We see that he is committed to the things of God. In, in verse uh, 10, or, or no, verse 7, what do we read? We read in verse 7 uh, that he's so committed to the, the, the things of God that he even sends his officials out into the cities uh, equipped with the written law of God in order to teach the people. Look what we see there in verse 7. In the third year of his reign, he sent his officials, and then there's a long list of names that I won't be able to pronounce at, at the moment. And then we skip down to verse 9. What does it say about them? They taught in Judah, having the book of the law of the Lord with them, and they went about through all the cities of Judah and taught among the people. Imagine that for a moment. Just take a step back and think about what's happening here. Uh, this would be equivalent to, you know, the president sending members of his cabinet out to the major cities uh, of our country, uh, equipped with, you know, the Reformation Study Bible uh, to lead Bible studies and grow groups. That's what's happening here. That's what Jehoshaphat is instituting in the nation. He's a man of God. Uh, but Jehoshaphat was also known for his strong and for his steady leadership. When he ascended the throne, he made it a priority to go through Judah and to fortify all the borders and strengthen the armies, and he garnered a reputation for being a no-nonsense kind of king. His heart, as we've already read in verse 6, is described as being courageous in chapter 17, verse 10. What do we read? We read this, the fear of the Lord fell upon all of the kingdoms of the land that were around Judah, and they made no war against Jehoshaphat. Verse 11 is really astounding. Some of the Philistines even brought Jehoshaphat presents in silver for tribute, right? Even longtime enemies of God, like the Philistines, are bringing gifts to Jehoshaphat because they want to be on his good side. He has instilled fear in the surrounding enemy nations, and they all are now bowing to him. They're recognizing his authority. They're taking a step back, and they're saying, we're not going to do anything, Jehoshaphat. We recognize you are a powerful and mighty ruler. Judah, the land of Judah, was, a much, was much safer under uh, the reign of the mighty and courageous Jehoshaphat, who had everything under his control. That's not the Jehoshaphat that we find in chapter 20, is it? That's not the king that we find in chapter 20. In place of courage, we find fear. Rather than having everything under his control, it seems like everything is spinning out of control into chaos. What changed? It's this threat of war 
this threat of war that loomed large over his nation, and Jehoshaphat didn't see it coming at all. It's a surprise attack. He's caught completely off guard. Three nations had colluded together in an attempt to overthrow Jehoshaphat's kingdom. They're the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Maonites, also known as the people from Mount Seir. So when you read that in chapter 20, they're referring to the Maonites. And these were all people who lived east of the Dead Sea and the Jordan River. The Maonites were, were in the southernmost portion. Um, I just realized this would be west for you. Okay, so the Maonites were in the southernmost portion and we had the Moabites in the middle, and the Ammonites were up north. And it looks like they've met together somewhere in the middle, and they've crossed over uh, this, this barrier between them and uh, Judah, namely the Dead Sea, the Jordan River. And now they are on the western shore. They're on the side of Judah. I mean, that's what's so shocking about this news. Not only how massive these forces are, which we are told multiple times in this passage, how big this, this army is, right? But that's not the only thing that's so shocking and so terrifying about it. The other thing is how quickly they move. They're already over the sea. So to add insult to injury, though, we also need to know this. We learn in verse 10 of chapter 20 that these were people that Yahweh had forbidden his people, the Israelites, from destroying as they made their way into the promised land. You know, they were given this commission to rout out all the Canaanites, but as they're making their way through the Moabites and the Ammonites, God says, no, you're going to spare them. And so, Kind of like, you know, this is the way they're going to return the favor. Now we're going to launch a surprise attack against you and try to kill your people, take over your land, steal your goods. This is how they return that favor. And this is how the news would have come to Jehoshaphat. There are a lot of people coming, and they're basically already here. I mean, that's how the news would have come to them. Lots of people are coming, and they're already across the sea. I mean, they're, they're right outside our gates, practically. The news hits the king like a ton of bricks. Things had been going so well for him. He thought he had secured the border. He thought he had reinforced uh, his military. He thought he had instilled fear in the surrounding nations. He thought... That's the problem, though, right? He thought... In Jehoshaphat's thinking, he failed to include this variable of God's mysterious providence. So he rests in a security that ultimately fails him, that betrays him, and he's dumbfounded. He he doesn't know what to do, but we, we we can empathize with the king, can't we? We know this feeling of a surprise attack being caught off guard. We just commemorated and we just remembered the 16th anniversary of the attacks in New York City and Pentagon, 9-11. That was a surprise attack that caught us all off guard. We know that shock that comes with this. Perhaps you can conjure up in your mind's eye that, that iconic, famous picture of President George Bush. He, he was reading... Uh, to, to some uh, school kids. He was reading a book when he found out that uh, 
that the, the towers had been hit, and there's this picture of him. He's got this book open, and aid is whispering in his ear that the towers have been struck. And you can just see on his face utter shock, utter disbelief. He couldn't believe it. In fact, when, when that happened in that classroom, there was another aide standing in the back of, uh, back of the classroom, and because uh, the information that was coming in was, was just so uh, unreliable, they didn't know what they could believe or what was false or what was true, he stands up on one of the little kids' desks, he takes a notebook and he writes some big capital letters so that the president can see from the front of the room, don't say anything. But what would there have been to say? What would there have been to say? I mean, none of us saw it coming. I don't think President Bush needed that reminder. The news would have stopped anyone in their tracks because we all thought we were safe. We all thought we were safe. Friends, how are we prone to act when something we are resting in gives way? What's our natural response to a situation wherein our securities fail us or betray us? It's to panic, isn't it? It's to panic. It's to stop our mental and logical processes, and we run around, we run around screaming. But notice, that's not what Jehoshaphat does here. What is panic? Panic is, panic is giving into despair because you recognize that you are unable, you are unable to control or change your circumstance or your situation. Let me give you that definition again. This doesn't come from Oxford's dictionary or anything like that, but this is my definition. What is panic? Panic is giving into despair. When you realize that you are unable to control or change your circumstance or your situation. So a Christian, therefore, should never panic. Why? Because we already know that we cannot control or change our circumstance or our situation. That's God's business. We're held in the grip of His grace. He has the whole world in His hands. Our times are in His hands. So there's no need to panic. When things are going well, or even when things are seemingly spinning out into chaos, God is the one who is handling things, and so we turn to Him in our time of doubt, in our time of despair. When we are prone to panic, we turn to God. That's precisely what Jehoshaphat does. He does not panic. Rather, rather than panicking, he, he praises God. He petitions God. He prays to God. He turns to God in an act of worship. And that's the second thing we'll consider this morning. This story opens with the threat of war, and then it moves into this act of worship. Rather than panicking, rather than despairing, Jehoshaphat instantly points himself, and he points his people, his nation, to their only hope in life or in death, to Yahweh himself. Verse 3, we read that he proclaims a fast in the nation. Verse 4 says that all of Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From, from the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And then verse 5, we see that the king stands before the assembly, which is Old Testament lingo for church. He stands before the assembly as they are present at the temple. And what does he do? He leads them in a corporate 
prayer and plea for aid from Almighty God. In the face of this terrible onslaught, he prays. And notice the nature of his prayer. It's there in verse 6, how he begins. O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? This is a rhetorical question. This is really more of a statement. Lord, you are God in heaven. He begins by acknowledging God's sovereignty. He's saying, you are the one who's up there. We're down here. We can't see everything that's going on, but from your vantage point, you know everything. You see everything. You know the predicament that we are in. So he acknowledges God's sovereignty, and then in the second half of verse 6, he acknowledges God's omnipotence, his utter power to do what he pleases with whomever he pleases. You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations, and your hand are power and might. None is able to withstand you, he says. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say that God is a God of power. He also says he's a God of promise. And this is really what the whole prayer hangs on. You see that in verse 7. What does Jehoshaphat plead? He pleads the promises of God. He said, our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? He's saying, Lord, we know. We know our history. You promised something to Abraham, your friend, one you entered into covenant with, that you would grant this land as a possession forever for his inhabitants, for his, or for his descendants. And so we know, Lord, we are clinging to that promise and we believe that you will keep us here. You will not fail on that promise that you have made. All in all, though, Jehoshaphat recognizes that it is God who is in control, not him. Isn't that, it's such a simple truth, but isn't that something we need reminded of every day? God is the one who is in control, not us. Notice the contrast between verse 6 and 12. Look at verse 6, the second half of verse 6, and then I want your eye to drop to verse 12 immediately. Second half of verse 6. In your hand are power and might. Verse 12. We are powerless. In your hand are power. We are powerless, it says, against this great horde that is coming against us. Israel was, was facing the reality of their impotence. Their lack, their utter lack of power, their weakness against this massive army of three nations that was marching toward them. But they knew even in their weakness, they had hope in the strength of God Almighty. And friends, that is our hope today as well. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul tells us? Right? In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, it says, God is saying to us, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect when? When we are powerful, when we are mighty? No, my power is made perfect in your weakness. In your weakness. And so Jehoshaphat, he comes, and in this prayer, he acknowledges that he doesn't have the answers. He does not have the answers. He doesn't know quite what to do in the face of this impending calamity, but it's okay. Why is it okay for Jehoshaphat? Because he understands this very important detail, friends. He understands that he doesn't need the answers as long as he is watched and guarded and protected by the one who does have the answers. 
That's what he says in the end of verse 12. Look there with me. This last sentence of verse 12. I don't know if you like to highlight in your Bibles. If you do, my guess is, I don't want to be presumptuous, but my guess is you probably don't have a whole lot of things highlighted in Chronicles. I don't. Here's something to highlight and to underline and to memorize and to take to heart. Verse 12, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. What a beautiful statement of faith and trust. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We are looking to you. One commentator says that that this is the most touching expression of trust in God to be found anywhere in the entire Bible. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 12. We do not know what to do, but we're looking to you. Our eyes are on you. Friends, this is what faith is all about, isn't it? Trust in times of uncertainty. Confidence in times of doubt. Faith, faith is about seeing the face of God even when you can't see or comprehend what's going on around you in your life. Even when everything is confusion and chaos, you look to God. You see God. It's about looking above where Christ is, Colossians 3 tells us. Even when things down here seem like they're so bad, we look up above where Christ is ruling and reigning even now, where he is interceding for us even now. And indeed, friends, this is the only remedy to fear. What's the only remedy to fear? Faith. It's faith. What is the only thing that can still the anxious heart but a soul that trusts and rests in an almighty God? We don't need to have all the answers, just like Jehoshaphat didn't need to have all the answers, as long as we know and believe that we are guarded, we are watched, we are protected by the one who does have all the answers. And brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, that is true for you. What's the antidote to fear? It's faith. That's what will still the anxious soul. What's that famous line from St. Augustine? You know, he says that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, speaking to God. Another way we could paraphrase that is we're going to be filled with fear until we put our faith in you. We will have fearful hearts until we find our faith in God Almighty. And so, and so even when, or not even when, especially when things seem to be not going according to plan, even when we are at a loss for what to do next, we set our eyes on Him who has His eyes set on everything else, who knows the whole plan from beginning to end. He knows what's going on, and He knows how to get us through. And we see here how faith and worship go hand in hand. It's because Jehoshaphat had faith in Yahweh that he assembled the people at the temple to call upon the name of the Lord. Otherwise, this would seem like an utterly foolish move to make, right? Think about it, right? He's received word that this massive army is coming to attack them at any moment, and Jehoshaphat says, let's go to church. What? Did you not hear what we said, Jehoshaphat? They're, they're coming. They're going to be here at any moment. You know, rally, you may make a rallying cry, get the, get the armies together, let's go to our battle stations. He says, no, we're going to church. 
Jehoshaphat understands that the only proper response in a crisis like this is to praise and petition the omnipotent God that he serves. And God, God responds back. This is beautiful. He calls everybody in God's, into God's assembly, into the temple worship, and God answers. God responds back in verses 13 through 17, speaks through Jehaziel, this prophet, to give a word of assurance to the people to let them know that they've done the right thing, to come to him first. They've done the right thing. He not only affirms, God that is, God not only affirms Jehoshaphat's earlier statement that they are powerless, that they are unable to do anything, but guess what? He says, actually, you don't need to do anything. You're not required to do anything. You don't have to do anything. Look at verse 15. The battle is not yours. It's God's. Verse 17, you will not need to fight in this battle. They can sit back and watch the show, so to speak. And this reality that they don't need to do anything, that God is in control, it all culminates in this one very simple but practical application. Do not fear. Stop your worrying. See that in the second half of verse 17, don't we? Right? You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. That's the answer. That's our response to God's word of assurance. Do not be afraid. God will handle it. Isn't that something we need to hear so badly, brothers and sisters? That we don't need to fight, that God's done the work for us. We need to stop our fretting. We need to keep calm. We need to stand firm. And, and why? Because the battle is not yours, it's God's. Because the battle is not yours, it's God's. So how is faith the antidote to fear? How, how is worship the proper response to our fears and our anxieties, our troubles, our uncertainties, our worries, those things that keep us up at night? How is worship right here, what we're doing right now, how is that the response, how is that the right thing to do? You know, oftentimes, I think if we're being honest with ourselves, when we are struggling, our, our kind of first inclination is actually take a step back from God, isn't it? We like God when things are going well, when things are smooth sailing, and then we hit a bump, some turbulence. How could you do this to me, God? We start to take a step back. When our world seems to be spinning out of control, as it certainly would have seemed to, uh, to the Israelites, that's when we are most likely to give up on God. But how foolish of us. How foolish of us. How is faith the answer to fear? How is worship the remedy to our troubles? Because, friends, it's in worship. It's in worship that God speaks to you as he spoke to the Israelites in their worship. It's in worship that God speaks to you, do not fear. The battle is not yours, it's mine. That's not a word that you hear from God as you separate yourself from him, as you distance yourself from him and his corporate body of worship, as you lock yourself in your room and try to deal with your own problems. That's not a word that you hear from the world as you seek the world's solutions for your troubles. 
That's something that you hear in worship. As God's word is faithfully declared aloud, you hear him say to you, stand firm, hold your position, see the salvation of the Lord. You will not even need to fight in this battle. That's what you hear in worship, friends. What's the greatest battle you will ever face in your life? I know the answer. I don't know any of you, but I know the answer because it's the same for all of us. The greatest battle you will ever face in your life is a battle against sin. The battle against the forces of evil. Scripture tells us that Satan is seeking to devour us, to launch an attack against us, and Satan and his armies would make the armies of the the Ammonites and the Moabites just seem like nothing. And he's after us. Friends, if you distance yourself from God in your time of trouble, then you have legitimate reason to be afraid. If you distance yourself from God, you have legitimate reason to be afraid. But, but, if you draw near to God, if you draw near to Him by faith, if you come into His presence, if you come into His presence in worship, you hear His word of assurance, and that word is this, He sent another to fight in your place. This great battle that we all face, this battle against Satan, sin, and and the powers of hell, he sent another in your place. You will not even need to fight in this battle because he sent the captain of the armies of heaven out to the battlefield. And friends, he was victorious. Colossians 2 tells us that Christ disarmed the demonic rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them at the cross. That's what we need to hear. That's what we need to hear every Sunday. You know, we're coming out of a week of worries and troubles and anxieties. And here, this first day of the week, we are strengthened when we hear those words. We are emboldened to go back into this world of sin. To be courageous that whatever comes our way, we have this word of assurance from God. That Christ was victorious in our place. Friends, to hear this word will strengthen you to stand up in the face of your fears. It will cause you to to sing boldly without quivering the praises of God just as the Levites did in verse 19. Did you notice that? I love verse 19. The The Levites of the Kohathites, the Korites, they stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Brothers and sisters, your voice does not shake or quiver when you're singing the praise of God. You will sing his praises with a very loud voice. So there's no need to panic. There's no need to fear. No need to try to scramble together some kind of battle strategy. The battle is not yours. It's God's. That's what Jehoshaphat was told. And he took that word by faith. He trusted in God's promise of deliverance. And he continues on in the face of near certain death, yet unafraid. That fear that we saw at the beginning of Je- for Jehoshaphat, at the beginning when he finds out this news, that they're under attack, after they leave worship, that fear is gone, and they march forward faithfully, boldly, to the call of battle. And here we see the third movement of this story. It began with war, It moved to worship, and it ends with wealth. 
I just needed a third W, you understand, right? Really, the idea is more the spoils of victory. That's what it ends in. The spoils of victory. Notice how the Israelites obtain this victory. They wake up bright and early the next morning, and with an exhortation in, in verse 20 from Jehoshaphat, they are compelled to believe on the Lord to earn their victory. Look at verse 20. This is such an important verse. This is what Jehoshaphat tells his people. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, that is to say, believe his word, and you will succeed. This is very important, so I really want you to hear me on this, brothers and sisters. What are we learning there in verse 20? We're learning this, that victory, victory is predicated upon belief. What's that mean? It means that victory is contingent upon belief. That means you need to believe to win. That sounds like self-help, but that's actually scripture. You need to believe to win. Victory goes to the believer. And so this is Jehoshaphat's exhortation. We'll keep that in mind. But next he assembles the army. And who does he place at the front? Did you notice that as we were reading? Not their mighty men. Not their archers. Not the cavalry. He puts their singers at the front. It's like he, he like puts the marching band, front row of, this, uh, of this, this impending battle, they can see this horde of enemies coming for them. They're getting ready to fight them. And he says, okay, lining up first, I want my singers. Once again, what, Jehoshaphat? Do you understand what's going on? They're thinking, who voted in this guy? A marching band is going to lead them into war. And this seems completely foolish from a human uh, standpoint, but it's a beautiful, friends, it's a beautiful statement of their trust in God. A beautiful statement of their trust in God. Remember earlier at the beginning, I wanted you to keep something in mind, and that is, what is the thing that we miss out on most when we're afraid? And I said, we miss out on knowing our good God and knowing how good he really is. The Israelites don't miss out on that. That's what we see as they put the singers forward we see that they, in fact, are proclaiming the goodness of God. They march to war unafraid, and they're able to sing about this. We see in verse 21, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love, that is, his never-failing goodness endures forever. As they march unafraid, they do not miss out on their good God and how good he really is. It's the goodness of the Lord that leads them cheerfully into the fray. And it's almost as if these shouts of praise, it's almost as if they, they waft their way up into heaven and they tickle God's ear and as he hears them, he sets into motion his tremendous victory. For indeed, the Israelites do nothing, just as he promised. Literally, they do nothing. The text tells us that in verse 22, the Lord set an ambush. The Lord. You know, what does this mean? Well, it appears that he caused some confusion among uh, the, the other uh, side, among the camps, and what happens is that these nations literally turned on each other and fought each other, or the way verse 23 puts it, they all help to destroy one another. And here's where the story gets really good. Oh, you thought it was good. No, here's where it gets really good. As the Israelites look out over the defeat that they had nothing to do with, what do they see? It's in verse 25. 
spoils. Right? When Jehoshaphat and his people came to their spoil, they found among them in great numbers goods, clothing, precious things, which they took for themselves until they could carry no more. They were three days in taking the spoil. It was so much. Three days. Isn't this such the character of our great and loving God? He does the work and we reap the rewards. Friends, this is, right here in Second Chronicles, this is grace upon grace. This is being knocked to the ground by the amount of treasure that God places in our laps. We don't deserve an ounce of it though, do we? We've literally done nothing and yet this is how much he loves you, my friends. This is how much he loves you. His son lays dead on the battlefield and you reap the rewards. His son lays dead on the battlefield and you get the spoils. His son takes on the miseries of this life and the pains of death, the pains of hell, and what do you get? You get every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You get an eternal heavenly bliss. He gets death. You get eternal life. You get a heavenly mansion and a glorious crown and a celestial treasure that is so vast, it's not going to take you three days to collect it all. It's going to take you an eternity. There is so much. That's God's love to us in Christ. He does the work and we reap the rewards. And brothers and sisters, with the God who loves us so, with the God who lavishes us so, why should we be afraid? That's the question this morning. What do we have to fear? Well, we have seen that fear is the reality of life in a fallen world. Things will go wrong. Things will not go as planned. We'll be caught off guard. We will be shocked and surprised. But we are compelled not to panic we are compelled to praise. We're compelled not to worry. We're, we're compelled to worship. We are told here, we are called here to fight our fear with faith. Brothers and sisters, that is the only thing that will still your anxious heart. Looking to Jesus. Seeing him in his victorious splendor in heaven, knowing that he has defeated all of your enemies, past, present, and future. And he is preparing a place for you. He's done all the work. And he says, do not fear. We need to look to Jesus. We need to look to Jesus. John Newton, a wonderful pastor, hymn author, obviously known for his hymn writing, uh, he has a collection of uh, letters. Or there's, there's been made a collection of his letters that he wrote to his congregants. I would encourage you, if you haven't, to... Uh, get that book and read it. It's one of the most edifying uh, devotional reads uh, that I think is out there. And in one of these letters, he was writing to a congregant, and he was speaking uh, about Hebrews 12, the famous passage at the beginning of Hebrews 12, that we are uh, to lay aside every sin that clings so closely. And it says, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews commends us to be looking to Jesus. And this is what John Newton has to say about that little phrase. Looking to Jesus, the duty, the privilege, 
the safety, the unspeakable happiness of a believer are all comprised in that one phrase, looking to Jesus. Friends, I'm not sure what it is that you are afraid of today, what is keeping you up at night, what troubles you are going through, but I do know this. I do know that your fear diminishes the goodness of God in your sight. But if you flood your thoughts with the goodness of God, then there will be no room left for your fears, for your anxieties. So take your eyes off of that which makes you afraid and turn them to Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, the captain, the fighter, the conqueror, the one who triumphed over Satan, sin, and shame. There is no enemy too great for him, nor is there any treasure so rich that he would hold it back from us. He is a most loving Savior. He is a most lavishing Savior. And He will rescue you in your time of need. He will still your fears if you believe. Remember what we said earlier. Victory is contingent upon belief. Victory goes to the believer. Brothers and sisters, I call you to faith in Christ today. Look away from your sins. Look to Jesus Believe in his name and be saved. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your word to us this morning. A word that shows that you are indeed a faithful God that can dispel our fears if we look to you. Lord, we pray that you would impress this truth upon us this morning that it would take root in our hearts and that it would change us, we pray. Lord, we plead with you to send your spirit to renew us, to give us new life, life that is, that is completely absent of fear as we look to Jesus. Lord, we know he is our victor, he is our conqueror. So, strengthen our faith, strengthen our belief in him, and dispel any fear and doubt. We ask this in his mighty name. Amen.